be reading about some of that even tonight. So, Father, I pray that as we open up our Bibles to Ezekiel, that you bless this time in the study of your word. That, Lord, that it wouldn't just be mundane or routine or boring uh, as we look at. There's a lot of dimensions that are mentioned here, but there's a pattern. There is a, a place that we're going to see in the future. So we want to be attentive to the things that you show to us right now through your word. And, Lord, touch our hearts, excite our hearts for what is yet ahead. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So as you have Bible in hand, you want to turn to Ezekiel chapter 41. And in chapter 36 and 37, we saw, and keep in mind that Ezekiel, that he was from the priestly family. He's a priest. He was taken off into captivity in the second wave of deportation in 597 B.C. Uh, Daniel was taken in the first wave, uh, Ezekiel in the second. Then Jerusalem was destroyed in 586 B.C., And we know that Ezekiel really focused on the destruction of Jerusalem. He would prophesy to the false prophets and teachers about their abomination, false prophecies, the the uh, the you know their hearts that weren't right, full of lust, and everything that was taking place. And actually, keep in mind that if you remember in Ezekiel's chapter ten and eleven, we saw he saw that vision as he was taken in the spirit. And he would see the glory of the Lord that would depart from the temple. And as the the glory of the Lord, the Shekinah glory, would depart from the temple and over the Mount of Olives to the east and then depart. Well, now Ezekiel is speaking about a time as he's already spoke about a restoration. There's going to be a physical restoration of Israel. And I want you to keep that in mind because on Sunday mornings as we've been going through uh, Matthew that we see that Jesus had indicted the religious leaders at that time, uh, cleansing the temple. He would uh, also, uh, as we saw, the cursing of the fig tree, that that it was symbolic of that there was a lot of religiousness, a lot of leaves on a big fig tree, but there was no fruit. And that judgment would come. We see that in the triumphal entry of Jesus as he came into Jerusalem on that first day of Passover and as they're celebrating Passover, Passover week that was coming. And we know that he would weep over Jerusalem because he said that they're going to build an embankment around you and they're going to level you on every side and not one stone will be placed upon another is what Luke's narrative tells us. And, and Jerusalem was going to be destroyed. And we know that here is Ezekiel. He's talking about the time where the first temple is destroyed, Solomon's temple, that was a magnificent structure. Jesus weeping over the second time it happened to the second temple being destroyed, not one stone left upon another. But here Ezekiel is in the highlight of his visions that we've been looking at is chapter 36 and 37, coming back into the land being restored, inhabiting the ancient cities once again, rebuilding them, the land blossoming once again, dry bones coming together in the valley, a nation that was once dead, um, and all of a sudden those dry bones come together in that vision, and then their skeletons, and then the muscles and the tissues come together as the Lord asks Ezekiel, can these bones live? Can these skeletons live? You know, Lord, and then he put, you know, the he breathed life into the corpse, and it symbolized a nation that was dead coming alive once again. And in Ezekiel 38 and 39, this war 
that is yet future, that we see stage-setting events that are taking place, the confederation of nations that are going to invade Israel in this massive invasion in the latter days is what Ezekiel prophesies. And we see those alliances that are taking place and how incredible it must have been this, as Ezekiel is looking at all this and the cleanup of the battle, which really describes perhaps weapons of mass destruction that is going to be used, that it's going to take seven years to burn the weapons or those nuclear weapons. Uh, it's going to take seven months to cleanse the land and, and those employed are going to mark the bodies, not able to touch the bones and the bodies because perhaps of radiation, you know, nuclear weapons used, maybe chemical weapons. It's an incredible scene that we see there and how overwhelming it must have been. We know that Ezekiel is prophesying when they come back into the land and inhabit the mountains and the, and the cities once again in the latter days. This is when it's going to take place. So we see very clearly going through the Old Testament that there's going to be a physical restoration of Israel and there's going to be a spiritual restoration of Israel that Ezekiel has been speaking of and will continue to even as we study here tonight, that there's going to be a time, a new covenant will come to them, a fulfillment to them. Uh, we get to experience the new covenant where we have the Lord that is in our hearts. He's written his law on the tablets of our hearts, a new spirit, a new beginning, a, a new life. And, and they will experience that, as Paul says in Romans chapter 11, that in that day that all of Israel will be saved. And so there is, is the highlight here of Ezekiel seeing that time where there's going to be a millennial temple that will be standing that we've been looking at. So think about how overwhelming it has been for Ezekiel the priest as you know, heartbreaking as it is, speaking the word of the Lord, judgment's going to come, destruction, death, and devastation to you guys in this captivity, and you're ignoring what the prophets had said. Jeremiah was prophesying at the same time in Jerusalem. Daniel's in Babylon as he's ministering there to Nebuchadnezzar in the palace, and Ezekiel is ministering, and he's ministering to, to the elders. He's ministering to the leaders, those visions that he saw. So this is a real highlight for him. And as we look around and as we talk about these things, again, as I mentioned, Jesus, that he indicted the religious leaders. He said judgment is going to come to them. But as we talked about how there was religiousness, always keep in mind that does not negate the promises that God has for them in this restoration that is coming for them. So keep that in mind because there's a lot of, you know, um, you know, Christians and Bible teachers that are saying, well, uh, you know, they are cursed and they will never be restored. And re churches, Israel, replacement theology and all of this. The Bible makes it very clear. Verses, many of them in the Old Testament, whole chapters, telling us that the Lord says, I will bring this to pass. So this is literal. And as we go through these chapters, chapters 40 through 48, that speak of the millennial reign, and as it speaks of the millennial temple, that keep in mind as we go through it, it may seem mundane. It may seem like boring. Why all the details? But this is our future. And what I hope and pray is that it excites us as we go through it. We may not understand and picture in our minds all the details and why is there the details given to us, but I'll tell you what, 
that as much as you can, be attentive to what is being said here, because there is a time that is coming that we are going to see that temple, and we're going to say, yes, I remember studying this in Ezekiel, where maybe perhaps a lot of Christians think this is not important, it's not beneficial, it's not profitable for me, and we know that all Scripture is profitable for us, is beneficial for us, And this reminds us that this is going to happen. This is going to be true. And we're going to see this temple someday in Jerusalem. And so I pray that we keep that always in the back of our mind. So in chapter 40, we saw that he began to to, uh, talk about the new city, uh, a new temple. Uh, Keep in mind that in the prophetic scenario, that at the end of the tribulation period, that Jesus is going to come back And he's going to touch down on the Mount of Olives at the end of the tribulation period. The battle of Armageddon, the last world war, will be taking place in the valley of Megiddo, just north of there. And those who are fighting in that battle when Jesus comes back, and by the way, part of our future is we get to come back with him. Isn't that glorious? I mean, I I want to keep my eyes on the coming of the Lord because it gives me hope. It brings me joy. Uh, If I just focus on this world now in the present, then it can get me down. But everything that I see around me that isn't right, that is, you know, contrary to the ways of God, the direction of our nation, the direction of our world, that I know that that God has a plan. He speaks of these things. The birth pangs, the signs are there, speaking of his coming. And Jesus didn't say weep and mourn. We do over the spiritual condition. But he said, when you see these things begin to come to pass, look up and rejoice for your redemption draws near. So we can rejoice. Paul said, in the coming of the Lord and the rapture of the church, comfort one another with these words. When it came to the day of the Lord, you're children of the light, not of the day. Be sober, be vigilant. And you're not appointed to wrath, but to obtain salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. Comfort one another with these words. When it came to the the coming of the Lord to the church at Thessalonica, Paul said, you don't need to be troubled in your heart uh, to them because they thought they had missed the coming of the Lord, the rapture of the church. They thought they were in the day of the Lord. He says, no, don't be troubled, don't be shaken. So we're to be comforted, not troubled in our hearts. Jesus said to his disciples in John chapter 14, he says, don't be troubled in your heart. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I go and tell you, I would have told you so. And he goes on, I'm going to come and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. He's speaking of the rapture of the church. I'm going to receive you to myself, that we are going to meet him in the air, and then forever we will be with him. So that's our glorious future, and that brings me hope, that brings me joy, that makes me motivated to occupy till he comes, not hide my head in in the sand, because the Lord can come for me, you know, later today or tomorrow. Tomorrow isn't promised to me, but I do know this, that he's going to come for us. We're all going to be together. We're going to see this millennium kingdom. We have such a glorious, glorious future. The world is not our hope. He is our hope, and we belong to a kingdom that is established forever. So in chapter 40, he began to give us the visions after, you know, the battle of Ezekiel, as God pours out 
his spirit on the house of Israel at the end of chapter 39. And then he begins to describe this millennial temple. And keep in mind that there's a lot of cubits that are here, a measurement. Now, a cubit, as we read about it, like, for example, when we see the description of Solomon's temple being built, uh, that this furnishing was this many cubits, that a cubit was usually about 18 inches from the tip of your finger to your elbows, what they guess. Here, the cubits that are being used, as we saw in chapter 40, being a cubit and a hand breadth, so the width of your hand. So the cubits that are being used here are at least 21 inches to probably 24 inches uh, is what the cubit is being spoken of. And let's begin to look at chapter 41 as we're going to see the dimensions of the sanctuary that are given to us in this millennial temple. Now keep in mind, Solomon's temple destroyed 586 B.C. Uh, Zerubbabel's temple that later on uh, became Herod's temple in Jesus' day, magnificent, destroyed in 70 A.D. There will be a third temple, and that is the tribulation temple that will be on the scene that has not been built. It's actually being built in some way, not the building itself, but the furnishings, the, the priestly robes, uh, the altars, all these things are in place. So when the Antichrist comes along that we will see in Daniel chapter 9, makes a covenant with Israel for the final seven-year period, Daniel's 70th week, then we know that they will, will rebuild the temple where the Antichrist will go in and desecrate the temple. He will go into the temple in the middle of the tribulation period. He will proclaim himself as God, to be worshipped as God in the temple of God, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. That temple will be destroyed. When Jesus comes back, we know that 1260 days after the abomination of desolation, three and a half years, and then they're spoken of 1290 days, and then blessed is he, Daniel chapter 12, that comes to 1335 days. So from 1260 to 1335 days, there's 75 days that are spoken. Blesses he who comes to that. And I believe what will happen is as Jesus comes back and we get to come back with him riding on white horses, according to Revelation chapter 19, that those 75 days, the number of things are going to take place. He's going to judge the nations. The tribulation temple is going to be tore down. It's going to be destroyed because that was the temple that belonged uh, to the Antichrist who desecrated it. And then there's the building of the millennial temple. I personally believe, and this is, you know, uh, my thought on this, is that the Lord is going to be the one that's going to build this millennial temple. So the fourth temple that the Bible speaks of that is an actual building that will be on this scene. So let's begin to look at the dimensions of the sanctuary. Again, this is our future. We're going to see this. Then he brought me into the sanctuary, measured the doorposts, six cubits wide on one side and six cubits wide on the other side, the width of the tabernacle. The width of the entryway was ten cubits, and the side walls of the entrance were five cubits on this side and five cubits on the other side. And he measured its length, 40 cubits, and its width, 20 cubits. And also he went inside and measured the doorpost two cubits and the entrance and six cubits high and the width of the entrance seven cubits. And so he measured the length 20 cubits and width 20 cubits beyond the sanctuary. And he said to me, this is the most holy place. Now, this millennial temple is not going to be, uh, there's differences here as we go through it. 
Because as we know from the tabernacle, from Solomon's temple, and the second temple, Herod's temple, or Zerubbabel's temple, that there was two rooms that were there in the temple or the tabernacle. There was the holy place and then the most holy place, the holy of holies. And separating the two was a curtain, was a veil. And only the high priest was allowed to go behind that veil on the day of atonement to make atonement for the sins of the nation, Leviticus chapter 16. But here, there's no veil that we see. And so the most holy place, and it's going to be occupied by the Lord. The Lord is going to walk in the midst of this sanctuary. And we know that as he's shown the temple itself, he describes it in detail. And uh, he is brought to the entrance of the sanctuary. It was a porch-like festival in front of the temple, steps leading up to it with pillars on each side. And the temple will be, as we see here, three stories of rooms that are told to us as they go up and as, as we, we look at this. Um, and we will see that it's going to have 30 chambers that are all around as we continue reading here. Let's look at that in verse 5. Next, he measured the wall of the temple six cubits, the width of the temple four cubits on every side. And six chambers were in three stories, one above the other. So it's talking about three stories, 30 chambers in each story. They rested on ledges and were for the side chambers all around, and they might be supported but not fastened to the wall of the temple. Matter of fact, these chambers became wider as you go up the stories, as we read here in verse 7, that from one, one went up the story, uh, two-story, the side chambers became wider all around because of their supporting ledges on the wall of the temple, ascendant-like steps. Therefore, the width and the structure increased as one went up from the lowest story to the highest by the way of the middle one. So the, the chambers become wider as you go up to three stories. These chambers, as we read about it, um, we don't know what they're used for. It doesn't really say but uh, we continue to read, and I also saw an elevation all around the temple in verse 8. It was from the foundation of the side temples, a full rod. A rod is about ten and a half feet, that is six cubits high. And verse 9 tells us the thickness of the outer wall of the side chambers was five cubits, and also the, that's about ten feet. And uh, also the remaining terrace by the place of the side chambers of the temple. And between it and the wall chambers was a width of 20 cubits all around the temple on every side. And the door to the side chambers opened on the terrace, one door towards the north and another towards the south. And the width of the terrace was five cubits all around. So as we look at this again, various rooms that are, are there, these chambers, the dimensions as given to us, and as we read in verse 12, the building that faced the separating courtyard as its western end was 70 cubits wide. Uh, so that's about 140 feet. The wall of the building was five cubits thick all around and its length 90 cubits. So it's interesting here. All of a sudden it is told to us that there's this large building on the temple proper, and this temple proper is huge. We're going to kind of sum it up as we get uh, further here at the uh, conclusion of the, the dimensions of the temple and the courtyards and the sanctuary and, and all of that, the gates that are told to us. It's huge, and, and there's going to be on that a separate building to the west that is told to us here in verse 12 
Again, we don't know what it's for, but it's going to be there. And it faced separating the courtyard as western end. And so this separate building that's there. I do have a theory, and the theory is this, that when we get there and you go over to the western end and you see that building, that one of the priests or whoever's there, you can ask them, why is this building here? Why this separate building that is here? That I think what they're going to tell you is, come on in, we're going to show you. Because you chose to study Ezekiel. You chose to be here tonight studying his word rather than watching TV. And there's going to be a blessing. But, you know, I'm, I know I'm kidding a little bit. But this building, I wonder why is, it, why is it there? But keep in mind that there's a purpose for everything that is here. And not all the details are told to us what, why it's there. But uh, it'll be there, and it'll be interesting when we get there. That Yeah, I remember that Pastor Jeff mentioned this, and we read it in Ezekiel 41, that chapter in verse 12, this separate building. What was that for? And I'm sure we'll get the answer at that time in the future. But let's continue reading in verse 13. So he measured the temple 100 cubits long, and the separating courtyard with the building and its walls was 100 cubits long. And also the width of the eastern face of the temple, including the separating courtyard, was 100 cubits. He measured the length of the building behind it, facing the separating courtyard and its galleries on the one side and the, on the other, 100 cubits, as well as the inner temple and the porches of the court. Verse 16, their doorposts and the uh, beveled window frames, the galleries all around, their three stories opposite the threshold were paneled with wood and from the ground to the windows, and the windows were covered. From the space above the door even to the inner room, or verse 17, the most holy place, uh, sometimes it's called the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament, um, or the inner sanctuary or the most holy place, this inner room as well as the outside and on every wall all around inside and outside measure. It was made with cherubim and palm trees, a palm tree between the cherub and the cherub. Each cherub had two faces. Now this is interesting here. So that the face of a man was toward the palm tree on one side and the face of a young lion towards a palm tree on the other side. Thus it was made throughout the temple all around. So in this temple here, notice that there's carved cherub. We have seen them. We see them described the cherubim uh, representing the guardians of God's dwelling place. Remember he saw the, the, the um, you know, throne chariot division earlier in Ezekiel as he saw what looked like a thunderstorm that was coming. But, it, you know, the, the divine lightnings and thunderings. But it was the the. the throne room of God. He's seen a vision of heaven and the cherubim that are the guardians that are described to us. And they each had four faces. Revelation chapter four talks about the four living creatures. And they had the face of a lion. They had the face of an ox. They had the face of an eagle and the face of a man. And here the cherub are told to us only two faces are mentioned. That is one of a lion and one of a man. So why aren't the other two mentioned? It could be just the, the vantage point where Ezekiel's seeing this. As there's a cherub, there's a palm tree, there's a cherub, there's a palm tree that we see that is mentioned throughout the temple here. And maybe the vantage point, he can only see two of the faces. 
and that is the face of a man in the line. But it reminds us that how Jesus, the line of the tribe of Judah, is our mediator and, and redeemed man. That's you and me. And the only reason that we're going to be there is because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross for you and for me. And dying for our sins and rising from the grave. And we're going to spend all eternity marveling at the incredible grace that, and love that God provided for us through Jesus Christ who went to the cross and redeemed us. And, and that just amazes me. So as we continue here in verse 20, from the floor to space above the door and on the wall, the sanctuary cherubim and palm trees were carved. And the doorposts of the temple were square as from the front of the sanctuary. Their appearance was similar. The altar was of wood. Verse 22 is interesting. Three cubits high and the length two cubits. Its corner, its length, and its sides were of wood. And he said to me, this is the table that is before the Lord. And the temple and the sanctuary had two doors. Verse 23. And the doors had two panels apiece. Two folding panels. Two panels for one door. Two panels for the other door. Cherubim and palm trees were carved on the doors of the temple, just as they were carved on the walls. A wooden canopy was on the front of the festival outside, and there were beveled window frames and palm trees on one side, and on the other, and on the sides of the festival, also on the side chambers of the temple and on the canopies. Now, what makes this Millennium Temple so interesting here is this is that there is, is going to be no menorah that is mentioned here. There's no shoe bread table that is mentioned here. No altar of incense. There is going to be the altar that's going to be mentioned here that we're going to be reading about here shortly that speaks of when the sacrifices are done. But in the sanctuary itself, all there is is a wooden table. It's not made of gold. It's not made of bronze. It's not made of, of silver. It, it's none of those things. And it's a wooden table that is there before the Lord. And that really intrigues me. Why the table? And, and the other things are not mentioned. Of course, you know, in this uh, temple, they had the menorah, the seven-branch menorah. And it represented that Israel was to be a light to the nations and also spoke of Jesus. Because everything in the Old Testament points to, uh, speaks of, is fulfilled by Jesus. He's the light of the world. Uh, the, the show bread, the 12 loaves of bread representing the 12 tribes of Israel but that Jesus is the bread of life and the altar of incense, so it's represent the, as they burn the incense uh, there right before the veil as you go into the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest again was allowed to go past that altar of incense and then behind the veil. But that's represented the prayers of the peoples. The smoke went up. None of that is going to be. It's only a table here, as it says, that is before the Lord. The Lord walking in the midst of this temple, which is very, very interesting. And as we read it here, that the two doors um, led to the outer sanctuary and to the Holy of Holies. That is the inner sanctuary. Now, why all these details again? Chapters 40 and 41 of the, the, um, the tabernacle itself. Uh, why the pattern here? Remember that whatever it is that we're building, and listen, there is actually a fifth temple. I mentioned this last week. It's not a building, but it is a temple that is living stones. And so the fifth temple mentioned in the scriptures is right now, which is present. There is no temple in Jerusalem. The first temple in Jerusalem destroyed. Second temple destroyed. 
the tribulation temple will be destroyed. The millennial temple will be during the millennium reign of Jesus Christ. But there is a temple on the scene right now, and it is believers in Jesus Christ. It is those of us coming together, living stones, as Peter writes, this holy habitation, 1 Peter chapter 2, coming together as we are living stones being fitted together. And there is a pattern for us in which to live by. There is details in how we are to be, as a church, a light to the world, to proclaim the gospel, to be a testimony of Jesus Christ. There is a pattern for us because we are called individually the temple of God. And as we remember, whatever it is that we are building, do it according to God's pattern. Whatever it is that we are building as a church, that we do according to the way that God wants us to, according to the scriptures. Not what is the latest trend, not what is the latest book, not what is the latest thing that comes blowing into the church that churches can get all caught up in, not what is you know, popular, not according to culture, but according to what is spelled out to us in God's word. And it is true for us in our own lives as we are building our lives. Remember Jesus concluded the Sermon on the Mount where he said that you be the wise man who built upon the rock, the solid rock, and when the storms came that that house is able to stand. He is like in the one who hears the word of God and does it. So as we read the pattern and the details, as we build our life upon the rock Jesus Christ, when the storms come and the, and the rains and the difficulties, which all of us go through, we will be able to stand. But we build upon him and we build our church upon him and how the church is to be spelled out to us in the book of Acts as we see in the New Testament um, that he is our foundation, uh, that he's the cornerstone of the church. He stands in the midst of the church, Revelation chapters 2 and 3. As he addresses those church, we learn so much. We've talked about that, you know, in the last couple of weeks. So rich and powerful. And we have a pattern that is given to us as living stones coming together. This is not a perfect building. It, this is not heaven. Um, and, but it is a living habitation that is even grander than the first temple and the second temple. Because we are alive in a temple. That's what the writer of Hebrews was trying to get across to the, the readers there. You see the magnificent temple there. You know, I know you, you struggle because of the, all the you know, religiousness and the trumpets blowing and the sacrifices and the feasts and all of that. But we have something better. And that is the Lord that lives in us and bringing us together as a church. I pray that we would always see that as a marvelous privilege that we are the church coming together. Please don't ignore that. Because sometimes I will hear Christians that will say, I don't need to go to church. I don't need to belong to a church. I can just, you know, uh, I, I don't need to do that. Listen, the church can't save you. And, and you know, a pastor can't save you. But we are told very, very clearly in the New Testament how important the church is to the Lord. And we are told not to forsake the assembly of ourselves together, as is the matter of son, especially as you see the day approaching. And if anyone who says, I don't need to be in fellowship, I understand that there are some, because of, of you know, their situation, shut-ins or 
Um, they just can't be around people. I understand that there are circumstances that take place, and there are some that they, they need to watch their health, and, and that's a conviction that they have. But for some, it's just an excuse not to go to church, and the church is important. Don't isolate yourself is what I'm saying, if you don't have to. Because a trick of the enemy is to try to isolate you, to get you by yourself, and, and you'll begin to decline spiritually. You'll feel alone. You'll feel weak. Um, the church is for you to be benefited and blessed. And again, there is no church that is perfect. But that might be a word to, to someone listening tonight. That perhaps the Lord has been saying it's time to come back. It's time to come back and be in fellowship where you can use your gifts, be prayed for, have fellowship with other believers, that you can be edified in every way. The church is beneficial, and it is very, very important for us that we understand that the church is important to the Lord. Please don't buy into, I don't have to be in church, as an excuse. I understand again, and I don't want to be insensitive to those who are shut-ins, or, or those who perhaps that, you know, because of health reasons, uh, mentally or physically, that you just can't be here right now. And online is your best option. And I'm thankful for this technology. But as much as you can, please be in fellowship. And I think for some, the message is it's time to come back. You know, the pandemic isolated us. And, and so many are coming back and saying, I'm so glad to be back. I'm so blessed to be back. I, I, I was isolated too long. And, and I am so, uh, you know, glad to hear those words and stuff. But I think maybe perhaps, and please hear my heart on this. I'm speaking very humbly and just very honestly. But perhaps, just perhaps for some, that some bad habits have developed. We don't need to be in church. It's not important. It's, it's, we don't have to be in fellowship you know, with other believers. You are missing out. And you're missing out on what God's word clearly says. Don't forsake the assembly of ourselves together, as is the matter of some. And I think that's a verse for some. There are some that are just saying, I'm not going to meet. Especially as you see the day approaching. What day? The day of the Lord. We're seeing the day of the Lord approaching, guys. And this is not a time to be isolated. It's a time for the church to gather, to be used, to be blessed and benefited, to use your gifts to, to bless others, to develop those good relationships with others. And I pray that we can bless you in that way, that Calvary Chapel is a blessing as we gather for you. So that's what I pray for us. And I just, you know, I know I'm harping on this a little bit, uh, but I feel very strongly uh, about it, that it's important for Christians, especially today, to be in fellowship with other believers. It might, for you, be a small group. It might be a Bible study. But to be with other believers, because where two or three are gathered, that's the church. And, and to, to, you know, belong to a, a, a church that teaching the Word of God, that is encouraging you and is building after the pattern that is given to the church 
that we have that is here. Let's quickly look at chapter 42 as we look at the chambers for the priests. Then he brought me out into the outer courtyard, by the way, towards the north, and he brought me into the chamber which was opposite the separating courtyard and which was opposite the building towards the north, facing the length, uh, which was 100 cubits. Uh, the width, uh, 50 cubits, was the north door. Opposite the inner court of the 20 cubits, and opposite the pavement of the outer court was gallery against the gallery, these three stories. In front of the chambers, towards the inside, was a walk 10 cubits wide, at a distance 1 cubit, and their doors faced northward. Now the upper chambers were shorter because the galleries took away space from them more than from the lower and middle stories of the building. For they were in three stories and did not have pillars like the pillars of the courts. Therefore the upper level was shortened more than the lower and middle levels from the ground up. And so as we look at this, it's kind of interesting that as you went up, these um, rooms got more narrow. Verse 6 tells us these chambers for the priests. The priests will have these quarters in north and south of the temple. And we see that as we continue reading verse 7, And the wall which was outside ran parallel to the chambers. At the front of the chambers towards the outer court, its length was 50 cubits. The length of the chambers towards the outer court was 50 cubits, whereas that facing the temple was 100 cubits. And at the lower chamber was the entrance of the east side as one goes into them from the outer court. And also there were chambers in the thickness of the wall of the court towards the east opposite the separating courtyard and opposite the building. Verse 11, there was a walk in the front of them. Also in their appearance was like the chambers which were towards the north as they were as long and as wide as the others and all the exits and entrances were according to plan. And corresponding to the doors of the chambers that were facing south, as one enters them, there was a door in front of the walk the way directly in front of the wall towards the east. And then he said to me, remember, this is a man that was introduced to us in chapter 40. He said to me, uh, this one that, uh, as he saw him, that it was one that uh, was uh, like a man of bronze, is what the description was, um, this angelic being. And he said, as he's showing Ezekiel here, the north chambers, verse 13, and south chambers, which are opposite, the separating courtyard are the holy chambers with the preach, priests who approach the Lord shall eat of the most holy offerings, and they shall lay the most holy offerings, the grain offerings, the sin offerings, the trespass offerings, for the place is holy. And when the priests enter them, they shall go out of the holy chambers into the outer court, but there, there they shall leave their garments in which they minister, for they are holy. And they shall put on other garments, then they may approach that which is for the people. Interesting here, a couple things. As we look at this, the area of the priests where they would eat the most holy offerings, the garments they wear will change as they leave you know, um, their garments. Um, there is one set of garments that are used for the sacrifices. There are sacrifices, as we've already talked about, that will take place in this temple. And it's a memorial for what Jesus Christ has done. But one set of garments for the sacrifices, they will change, as we're told here, and then the outer garments, um, another set of garments, that is to minister to the people. So it's interesting that two different sets of 
um, garments that are told to us. And then as we finish the chapter, now when he had finished measuring the inner temple, he brought me out through the gateway that faces towards the east and measured it all around. Verse 16, he measured the east side of the measuring rod, 500 rods, by the measuring rod all around. He measured the north side, 500 rods, by the measuring rod all around. He measured the south side, 500 rods, by the measuring rod. And he came around the west side, and he measured 500 rods by the measuring rod. And he measured it all on four sides. It had a wall all around, 500 cubits long and 500 wide, and separate the holy areas from the common. Or if you have a King James, it reads profane. So a couple things here. This temple is huge. And as we read about the total area that th those who are good at numbers and take the rod, you know, the measuring, that this is, you know, enough room for 13 football fields, first of all, to be on. It's about a square mile, and it is 765,000 square feet. This is a huge temple that is here. Now, this is where the debate is, because some will look at this and they'll say, well, Jerusalem, when you look at the Temple Mount, actually, it is the size of what the old city of Jerusalem is right now. If you go with us to Israel, we stand on the Mount of Olives, and we look towards the Temple Mount, and the old city that is surrounded by that wall, it's about a square mile. And there's the Jewish quarter, there's the, the um, Muslim quarter, Armenian quarter, you know, these four different quarters that are there, but it's, it's the old city of Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem itself, the modern city, is the largest city in Israel. It's larger than Tel Aviv, if I remember correctly, is what we are told. But the old city, this is huge. And what we're going to read as we continue is that it's going to sit on this holy mountain. It's going to sit on this mountain. And people say, well, it doesn't fit. You can't put a square mile you know, there and it doesn't fit. The topography is going to be different. I have no problem you know, uh, with this. Um, I don't have a problem that the Lord can do this. I believe he's going to build a temple. But keep in mind also that as we go through this, that Jesus, when he touches down on the Mount of Olives, that the Mount of Olives will split in half. We also know, as we're going to read about the altar here in the, in the following chapter, um, that the, there is going to be told to us a river that will run by the altar. And the river will run to the west of the Mediterranean. It will run to the east to the Dead Sea. So the topography is going to be completely different. So it seems like that, that the temples up on this mountain that is a huge temple, you know, a square mile, uh, all the courtyards and everything, the dimensions, that's where the Lord's going to be. And then the other mountains, because right now you have Mount Scopus to the north, you have the Mount of Olives, you have, you know, Mount Zion that was to the south, um, and these mountains around, but they will be lower, and then this is going to be, you know, different topography. Matter of fact, keep in mind that when the tribulation period happens, that there's going to be the flow of blood that's going to come flowing through that is spoken of in the book of Revelation, incredible destruction and death. The earth is going to be scorched. Remember, the waters are going to turn to blood. The green things are going to burn up. And Jesus Christ comes back in the middle of the tribulation period 
and and at the end of the tribulation period that is and and the earth is going to be scorched there's going to be devastation destruction like we've never seen after the bold judgments and and man come in and, and jesus said if those days were not cut short man would have destroyed himself so it goes completely flies in the face of what is popular in what we read today and a new apostolic reformation movement that the church is going to grow and grow and usher in, you know, the, the coming of the Lord and, and take over the earth. None of that. The prophetic scenario is this. When the Lord comes back, the world would have destroyed itself. Man would have destroyed himself. And, and there's going to be a difference in topography. And the, Isaiah speaks a lot about the desert's going to bloom. And matter of fact, that river that comes out of there the new mountain the mountain of the lord is going to bring healings to the waters it's going to bring healing the ultimate environmentalist is going to be jesus and the desert's going to bloom and actually they'll be fishing in the dead sea if you go to the dead sea today there's nothing that's living because the jordan river runs into the dead sea it's the lowest place on the face of the earth it's full of salt uh, full of minerals, the Dead Sea. There's no outlet. Nothing lives in it. There can't be any outlet if there's the lowest place on the face of the earth. Water only flows, you know, to a lower elevation. But we're going to see that they're going to be fishing in the Dead Sea. The topography is going to be completely different. So I don't have a problem with this um, because when the Lord comes back, uh, things, you know, are going to look different. The desert's going to bloom. You know, the Dead Sea is going to have life. Water's going to run by, you know, from the temple going to the Mediterranean, healing the waters of the world, you know, of the earth. Um, those 75 days, we're going to see that the Lord is going to bring healing and restoration, um, not only to Israel, uh, but for the millennium reign. And it's going to be glorious. And I can't wait for that time to come. So just something to think about as we go through this. Next time in chapter 43, we're going to see the Lord's dwelling place, the altar, and we're going to see the east gate, which is the most important gate as we continue looking at this. And um, I think and I hope uh, that you will be tremendously blessed as we look at this, the millennium reign of Jesus Christ. Listen, what is growing also in the church today as we close here, don't pack it up quite yet, is that there are those who are all millennials that say there is no millennium reign. You have to dismiss all of this. You have to dismiss, you know, so much of what's in Isaiah and what's told to us in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, what's told to us in the book of Revelation. The millennium reign of Jesus Christ is something that is for us to look forward to. But to say, I'll be, I'm a all millennials, all means no millennium, the Bible speaks otherwise. And, and I can't wait when we come back with him and the Bible says that we're going to rule and reign with him. The Lord has a future for you. We're going to rule and reign with him. And that's why the minas that's given to you, we'll talk about it in our future studies, the talents that are given to you, invest in the Lord. Because the Lord will say, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I'll make you ruler over many. You're going to rule over ten cities and five cities and two cities. What is that all about? When we rule and reign with him. We're going to be administrating. It's going to be glorious. And I hope that excites you and blesses you for the future that we have in the Lord. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for uh, 
Lord, this, these two chapters that we looked at that have a lot of dimensions, but we know it speaks of the pattern that we are to build upon you, Lord, and what you have for us. And Lord, I thank you for this living temple, living stones being fitted together, that we can come together and Lord, this holy habitation to be a blessing. We're a royal priesthood. Even as the priests of Zadok are going to be ministering here in the temple, we are a royal priesthood. We are priests unto you in that new song in Revelation chapter 4. You've made us priests. And you're a king. And Lord, you are, you know, you are the most high priest. Um, Lord, you are sympathetic high priest. They came and died for us, and we can go to you in our time of help. And Lord, in this world, as we look at it, we know this is not the end of the story, that the end of the story is there's a glorious kingdom that is coming. Help us keep our eyes on you. Lord, rejoicing, looking up, seeing these things coming to pass. And Lord, may we build our lives upon you so when the rains do come and the waters rise and the wind beats against us, that we be able to stand, not just hearing your word, but doing your word. So, Lord, I thank you for these lessons. I thank you for, for the body of Christ. And may, Lord, we know that your church is important. And may we not forsake the assembly of ourselves together. So we look forward to when we meet in Bible studies and as we meet on Sunday. Lord, just keep us close to you, the Good Shepherd, and Lord, with other believers. Bless everyone here, Lord, and we look forward to, to meeting on Sunday once again in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a great rest of the week. Hope we see you on Sunday.